Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Codebeam STO, previously the Erlang User Conference, celebrates 20 years of Erlang being made open source. Taking place May 31st and June 1st, Codebeam STO is the only conference in Europe bringing the Erlang and Elixir communities together. Some speakers are already announced, and more details, including early bird tickets, can be found at codesync.global. Monadic Party is a five days long Haskell summer school in Poznan, Poland, taking place June 11th through the 15th. They will have two tracks, one for programmers that aren't experienced in Haskell and would like to learn it from the basic concepts, the other track for people already familiar with the language and will present a selection of talks and workshops on a variety of topics. Their speakers include Julie Moronuki, who wrote Haskell Programming from First Principles, Chris Martin, co-author of an upcoming book, Joy of Haskell, a GHC contributor, Christoph Gugulewski, Carter Schoenwald, Marcin Samotuski, and Michal Kovalec. They have an open call for speakers and are looking for people who want to lead a series of lectures or workshops. Check them out at monadic.party. The 2018 Racket Summer School will run July 9th through the 13th at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. The 2018 Racket Summer School will cover the following topics. The spectrum of programming languages, modules and syntax, or languages as libraries, Dr. Racket's support for language-oriented programming, a domain-specific language for adding types to languages, tools and techniques for implementing notational conveniences, and research challenges in language-oriented programming. For more information and to apply, visit summer-school.racket-lang.org slash 2018. BlessConf will take place for the second time from August 2nd to August 4th in Germany, close to Frankfurt. BlessConf is an open space style unconference where FP lovers of all languages come together to teach, learn, share, and have fun. Haskell, Scala, JavaScript, F-Sharp, Java, Swift, BlessConf is a language-agnostic, low-cost, non-profit event, with 48 hours of learning, teaching, discussions, and fun. For more information and register, visit www.bless-conf.org. The Post Melbourne will be taking place Monday, August 27th. Visit www.composeconference.org to keep updated as more details are announced. The International Conference on Functional Programming 2018 will be taking place September 23rd through the 29th in St. Louis, Missouri. ICFP is an annual programming language conference. It is sponsored by the Association for Computing Machinery, ACM, under the aegis of the ACM Special Interest Group on Programming Languages, SIGPAN. For more information, see the general ICFP website. And this year, ICFP is co-located with StrangeLoop. The Strange Loop Conference is coming up again this fall. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 26th through the 28th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June 2018 and the keynote speakers have already been announced. The CFP is now open for submissions. It can be found at thestrangeloop.com slash cfp.html. And RacketCon will be taking place the 29th and 30th of September. This year, RacketCon will join ICFP and StrangeLoop for a week of programming revelry in St. Louis, Missouri at the Union Station Hotel. Specifically, they are in the Jeffersonian and Knickerbocker rooms. 8th RacketCon is the meeting for everyone interested in Racket. 
a general-purpose programming language that's also the world's first ecosystem for developing and deploying new languages. Rackacon is for developers, contributors, programmers, educators, and bystanders. It's an opportunity for all to share plans, ideas, and enthusiasm and help shape the future of Racket. For more information and to register, visit con.racket-lang.org. The Big Elixir Conference will be on November 8th and 9th in New Orleans. Registration and CFP are now open. Their website is www.thebigelixir.com. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. And that being, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Norris Proctor, and this week with us we have Zach Tillman. Zach, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hey, thanks for having me on. I am a developer. I've been programming for about a decade now, primarily in Clojure. Currently, I'm working as a consultant. I have been writing a book about Clojure called Elements of Clojure. And I'm doing some sort of independent research on some development tools. And I've seen you in the Clojure community, and you saw your book get announced and seeing people talk about it. And you recently did a draft, full draft available. So got a little bit more steam on that. So figured I'd get you in, get a little bit of background and get some details about the book because I've heard some nice things about the book from what people have read so far and have talked about so far. So let's just start with your background. How did you get into software and how did you get into functional programming? Well, I played around with computers from, I don't know, around middle school age, largely QBasic. I like to go and take the gorillas game where you throw explosive bananas at each other and add little cheats. That was sort of how I got my start. And I found that interesting, but it didn't really quite connect to anything else. There wasn't necessarily any sort of obvious next step there. Until later in high school, I picked up a book on C and started playing around with the sort of open source MUD software, the multi-user dungeons and sort of Telnet-based multiplayer games. And I uh, played around with the source code for something called Circle Mud for a while. Nothing really ever came of it, but that was really the first, I think, real code base I ever touched. I also started to get really interested in graphics. And so I played around with OpenGL and other stuff and had kind of convinced myself at that point that I wanted to make video games. And so I went off to college to study computer science with the intention of building video games and sort of went in that direction pretty single-mindedly until my junior year in college. I simultaneously realized the video game industry was kind of a cesspool, and I didn't really want to do that. And also I found the coursework that I was doing to be pretty dull. I remember really vividly I was taking a compiler course, and I was uh, had to write this 40-part recursive descent parser. And it was tedious and 
trivial at the same time. And I had this moment where I realized that if this was what working as a programmer was, I didn't want to do it. And so I stopped going to class and just try to figure out like, what did I want to do? And so for a while, I, I looked around and sort of in the process ended up getting the equivalent of a minor in philosophy and creative writing before I sort of circled back and realized that while I liked them, I didn't find them to be sort of to light my world on fire any more so than software. And it seemed like there were a lot more paths to success as a software developer than there was as a philosopher or a writer of fiction. And so I decided to kind of be a little bit more practical and retook the courses and graduated. And, you know, there was sort of a question in my mind of whether or not working as a developer was going to be as dull as homework. And luckily, it turned out that it wasn't. I actually I quite liked it. My first job was in C Sharp. I was writing desktop software and I was hired actually specifically because the CEO of the company wanted to create what he called a minority report interface. He wanted to create this sort of 3D interface for video surveillance software. And that seemed kind of cool. So I, I jumped into that and then that didn't end up going anywhere. And so I just became very well versed in these sort of like low level 2D rendering routines for Windows. And about three years into that, I looked around and realized I was about two years past where I really wanted to be on the internals of Windows development. And so I started looking around at what I wanted to do next, what was sort of the next language I wanted to play around with. And my sort of test case for that was trying to build stuff with OpenGL. And so, <laughs> which is not a very good test case for language, but that was sort of what I was interested in and what I could kind of use as a framework to learn something. And so I played around with Ruby. I played around with OCaml and made moderate progress with both of them. But then a coworker of mine who was sort of an old common Lisp head was very excited about Clojure. Uh, this man named Tom Fallhaber, and he got involved very early. He wrote some of the documentation generators for Clojure early on. He wrote the Pretty Print library for Clojure. And I decided to take a look at it. And I had played around with Scheme a little bit back in school, but it hadn't really clicked for me. It hadn't seemed like something that really seemed practical, I guess. And that was something that I, at the time, valued. And so I tried to play around with it. And I tried to write an OpenGL application in it. And because Clojure is built on top of Java and because Java has good OpenGL bindings, it was really easy. And even more so... There's a very kind of heavy-duty verbosity to OpenGL, or at least to sort of the immediate mode OpenGL bindings, which tell you to, like, push a matrix, and then here's a vertex, and here's a vertex, and here's a vertex. And, you know, if you do that in C or in Java that resembles C, it's just a lot of lines of code just over and over and over again, and it becomes kind of sprawling and hard to reason about. And so the syntactic mechanisms in Clojure, the macros, right, that uh, allowed for this sort of ability to abstract away this boilerplate just clicked for me immediately. It made tons of sense to me. And so from that, I started just kind of get deeper and deeper on these things. And Clojure just, it did click for me. It did make sense for me. It kind of fit the way that I thought about software. And so I kind of started from there and, and never looked back. And the next job I got was a very short stint at Google before a Clojure startup approached me and asked me if I wanted to work on Clojure full time. And I, I jumped at it. So since then, I, I've done Clojure professionally pretty much exclusively. So you said you had some intro to Scheme, didn't really click back in college. 
I can understand where that could be because I had a similar experience where depending on the teacher you get, they can either tell you why or it's just use this because we're using this. But you had some OCaml as well that you played with. You had a little bit of Ruby. What was the prompt of going from your C-sharp world into the OCaml and then into Clojure for some of the functional programming stuff? Were you exposed to that a little bit with some of the link stuff where they started introducing lambdas in C-sharp? Or was that pre-lambdas and you had to make a jump? So what was that some kind of boundary between when you went from this, I'm doing C-sharp and I'm doing graphic stuff and I've been here two years longer than I should have been, to going out and venturing with some of these other new languages. And when you finally picked up Clojure, what helped that click? So yeah, I had been doing desktop UI development in C-sharp. And so I was quite familiar with lambdas, or I think they were called delegates in C-sharp 2.0. And I was also familiar with the link, like innumerable sort of stuff where you could go and you could compose all of these different sort of transforms over the sequence. And it kind of made sense to me. And then I started using Clojure and then it really made sense to me. Like it clicked for me, like what this was trying to do and how this allowed you to turn these sorts of nested kind of intertwined for loops into something where each step is clearly called out and you can sort of move them around and refactor them and insert them and the sort of separation of concerns there. And in fact, I think that like basically everyone at my job started looking at the code I was writing, which, you know, was C sharp undeniably, but didn't resemble any of the other C sharp in the code base. And like, what on earth, what happened, right? What are you doing? What is this? And I think that as with anything where you kind of have a new toy, you want to use it everywhere. And so I I very likely overused it, right? I think there's something to be said for matching the style and sort of idiom of the people around you. But I was all in, right? This made sense to me. And I think that, you know, C sharp had these concepts, right? It's a, you know, quote unquote, multi-paradigm language, but it allowed you to write in a fairly functional way if you cared to. And so I think that it was actually far better than if I had, for instance, been using Java, which did not have these sorts of paradigms until fairly recently. And then you pick up OCaml for a little bit. You picked up Ruby. You said you were trying to do some OpenGL stuff. Nothing clicked. Was that the languages didn't just click with you or that was you couldn't really figure out how to take advantage of the languages for the OpenGL? And then when you came to Clojure, you said it clicked and trying to figure out what the exposure of the languages that you had seen in between Clojure, what made them click or not, or why you think looking back, you didn't pick those up and what made Clojure special for you when you saw it, you're like, ah, okay, now I get this. I think that my complaints here are not particularly well-informed ones. And I think, you know, anyone who is an advocate of OCaml, which I think is a fairly nice language. I I should also note, I, I played around with F sharp a little bit, which is basically OCaml with null sort of layered atop the .NET library, because that actually seemed like I might be able to use that at my job. And I kind of advocated for that for about six months before I was told in no uncertain terms that it was not going to happen. And so I liked OCaml and it wasn't actually that it didn't work for me. I thought the tooling was a little bit wonky. I think at that point, like uh, that was the first time I actually started playing around with Emacs because I think the only editor that was sort of community standard was Tuareg mode. The thing I actually remember bothering me the most is the auto currying because if you ever forgot a parameter to one of your functions, it would just curry. And then the compiler error I would get was nonsense, just really difficult to understand because this sort of partial function would just kind of cascade through your program until finally it's like, yeah, sorry, I expected alpha, but you gave me 
this other way more complicated thing. And I guess that, you know, at that point, and I should know, you know, I am not a, I mean, I'm familiar with a sort of Hindley-Milner sort of class of type systems and everything like that, but I, I'm by no means an expert. But I found that to be hard to reason about. And I felt like I was actually spending more time trying to make the type system happy than the type system was saving me from my own sort of conceptual errors. And it just didn't seem like it was helping me along very much at that level of sort of familiarity. Also, its OpenGL bindings were a little bit wonky. And so it just kind of, it didn't, again, this is a, a utterly ridiculous kind of acid test to use for a language, but it was one I was using. And so I appreciated it. And I, I think that what I'd used for graphics prior to that had been C++, which, what was his name? Alexandre Andrescu, or the guy who did all the STL stuff. He had a very type system heavy idea of how to build complex libraries. And so I was kind of moderately familiar with this idea of these interlocking pieces and this the library gives structure that you sort of build top and it sort of shapes everything above it in this sort of crystalline structure. And I kind of bought it. I wasn't totally sold on it. And I think that my encounter with OCaml made me understand what that could look like without all of the C++ kind of cultural baggage. But it just didn't seem like there was a lot there. Also, I think at the time, the only real employer you could have for that was Jane Street. And so that also seemed like it was it was not opening a lot of doors. That makes sense. And it's just one of those things to see what clicks, what doesn't. And if it's just, I got it, but just wasn't feeling it versus I got lost. Because I know I've dug into a couple languages the first time and I hear people talk about Haskell and others where it's like they talk about the deflector shield on it, that if you don't approach it at the right angle, you're going to bounce off and you might have to go in a number of times. But if you said closure was the first thing and you kind of click from the early beginning because you had the coworker work on it. What about closure when you started digging in made closure click for you? Well, so that's actually the interesting question. And I think that early on, because I was using closure basically from its 1.0 release. And so, you know, I've been working with it in one form or another for about nine years now, maybe closer to 10. And when it was sort of in its younger phase and when it was writing a lot of that sort of lisp enthusiasm that Paul Graham had kind of planted in the online community, I did have people ask me like, okay, so so why closure? What is closure? Why do you like closure? And I really struggled to articulate that, I think, because I knew it made sense to me and I really liked the macros. I was very macro happy for a while with a lot of the stuff that I did. And I liked the kind of standard library and how it separated out these problems. But it was sort of more of this intuitive, visceral, I like this reaction than something that I could really put words to. And to jump many years ahead to the book, I think this was, was maybe my first attempt to really try to put words to what is the central closure idiom? What are the things that closure sort of helps you get right? And I think that it's difficult, not least because when closure was first being released, a lot of the publicity was around it's transactional memory, like the sort of concurrency primitives and all this other sort of stuff. And I think that the community took a while to settle on the fact that, in fact, it's just that Clojure has practical immutable data structures that you can interact with in a fairly dynamic way, which is, I think, still Clojure's sort of unique position in the functional language ecosystem. And I think that's it, really, is that it laid very bare how much you could do with pure immutable representations of data. And as you get in and you start developing closure, 
if you're in there in the early days and you've seen the community evolve, I probably looked at it somewhere around 2010, 2011 time frame. So still pretty early on, but I know there were a number of people who had been doing it for a couple of years there and never found any practical application myself for it. It was just one of those things that was the language that helped change how I think and still need to go back and visit it for some of that macro stuff and all the power that they talk about from the Lisperati, how you can actually write your programs outside in, figure out what you want, and then redrive it and take advantage of some of those macros because that seems like a useful tool anyway. But as you go in, how did you find that community? Because that's early days, even if you're doing it nine or 10 years now. From even in 2010, 2011, there was still was a lot of churn. Linegan, Cake, I think, a couple of these other tools were coming along back and forth. What was it like if you said the OCaml tooling was rough? You're coming in at an early day of closure. What was that early days like, and how have you seen it evolve from the early community to where closure is now? And there's more options that you can find full-time jobs. You can even do consulting, as you said doing closure versus the OCaml world where you hear, okay, maybe some Facebook and maybe Jane Street are the places I could think of here, at least in the States, that touch OCaml. What have you seen that evolution like from your perspective as you came in from the early days to today? And now that you've actually started settling on enough time to digest what that looks like, that you've started to be able to work on this book. So, I mean, there was a lot of churn in the early days. There are a few people who just kind of stepped up and, and claimed large parts of the ecosystem. And in fact, I think that, that was part of the reason that I was interested in Clojure was like, I looked at Ruby and Ruby at that point was pretty well established. It was pretty much the sort of, I mean, I was in San Francisco. It was kind of the most common language you would see for any sort of new venture. And one of the interesting things that I saw was, you know, the people who were big in the community were by and large the people who just showed up first, right? They had laid claim to something and they were just almost exclusively the guy that was just planted the flag in, you know, I wrote a web server, I wrote a framework. I And, you know, obviously there are a few that had kind of fallen by the wayside, but seeing closure from sort of the early days before a lot of those flags were planted was part of my curiosity about sort of being there. And so very early on, Mark McGranahan came up with a sort of standard HTTP protocol called Ring, which is sort of analogous to Rack in Ruby. And Phil Hagerberg did Linegan. And the Ring stuff was fairly well scoped and so didn't require a lot of constant maintenance. Linegan was a totally thankless log that Phil just kind of poured himself into for years before anyone sort of came along and decided to share some of that burden. And I think that there was a lot of churn there, but there's also a lot of excitement. And I think that it was very easy for someone to come in and say, here is a use case that this is not serving. And you would see like a solution for that or a workaround for that within days, right? It was an incredibly engaged group of people who are working to kind of build up this infrastructure. And that was helped by the fact, not in terms of long-term viability, but in terms of the sort of initial speed of development, that most of these pieces of the ecosystem were owned by a single person. And so there wasn't a lot of consensus building. There was just like, you know, if you came and said, I would like to be able to do X, and they thought that was okay, they would help you do X. And so one of the flags that I planted early on, I did write an OpenGL wrapper, but that was not, I think, a particularly valuable piece of real estate. But I had been talking to some people about 
asynchrony, right? They've been talking about like, what does an asynchronous version of HTTP look like? And obviously, unlike a lot of the interpreted dynamic languages, Ruby has a proper threading model. And so this is not, I think, a burning need within the community, but it was something where, you know, Node had just come out. There was a lot of sort of buzz around this idea of asynchrony. People had somehow convinced themselves that this was just like the right way to solve certain kinds of problems. I had played around with Erlang a little bit in the past. That was one of the other things I kind of tried on, but they didn't even have an OpenGL binding. So, you know, and so I wanted to just kind of think about that. That seemed like a really interesting problem. Like, what does this look like? And it seemed to me intuitively that like Clojure's ability to create these sorts of language level extensions should help there. And so there is a standard library pretty much within the Java ecosystem called Neti, which is built on top of the Java NIO primitives, but creates a much more meaningful set of abstractions atop the kind of ePoll, KQ, asynchronous network interfaces. And so I just wrote a very simple wrapper for that in a weekend called Aleph, which was just like literally instead of returning the HTTP response, you went and you imperatively sent the HTTP response, right? These are sorts of decoupled now. And for whatever reason, I think largely having to do with the how hot the idea of asynchrony was and how hot the idea of closure was, there was just an enormous response. It was the most pitiful excuse for web server ever. Like it was like 100 lines of code layered atop this. It did a bunch of things incorrectly, but it was just right place, right time. And, and people got really excited about this in part because I think they saw this as a way for closure to popularize itself, right? Sort of to rise these buzzwords and sort of establish itself as, I guess, a competitor to Node in terms of like, how do you write high performance network stuff in a dynamic language? And so kind of based on that, based on the response, I decided to go and try to understand that stuff better to understand like, you know, how do you write network applications? How do you understand these sorts of protocols? How do you expose them in a way which is not so low level as to require someone to go and read a bunch of RFCs to do anything correctly, but not so high level that it precludes all of the flexibility that protocol affords you, right? HTTP is a good example of this where you can say, oh, well, you get a request and then you return a response and done. But there are all these little corner cases, all these little lacunae in there, which are like, well, what if someone sends a 100 continue expected? What if you want to do streaming requests uploading at the same time you're doing a streaming response download? What if you want to do WebSockets? What if you want to do all these other sorts of things? And so it very quickly falls outside of this very simple request response model. And so you want ideally to have an API that doesn't require you to load all that complexity in your head, but allows you to access that complexity if it's useful. And so that ended up becoming a major focus of mine over the next four years, give or take. Um, that was why I was approached by a startup to ask if I wanted to work on Clojure because I'd been kind of doing work that had been getting some attention there. Um, and then I just kind of kept on building on top of that and was lucky enough to be able to use my web server library in production at a string of jobs. So it wasn't just a completely theoretical thing. I mean, it wasn't a need. We weren't necessarily using it because it was useful, but we were using it because it was fun, which is, I think, true of most startups. Yeah, so that was sort of how I got into that. That's also how I went from being largely a graphics-oriented developer to becoming a back-end engineer or distributed systems engineer. And so, you know, that was a very fruitful time for me. I learned a lot. And one of the things that I really like about Clojure is that it gives you access to a lot of 
very capable libraries written in Java, which are often a little more ornate than they have to be, a little bit more complex, a sort of incidental complexity sort of baked into their API. And so an exercise of looking at this and saying, are things built this way because it needs to be that way or because they just didn't come up with a better way to kind of fold these things together and, and present this sort of unified interface atop them? And so I would go and I would try to take an existing interface and clarify it. And then I would have to try to understand, okay, did I just elide something that it has value or did I make it better? And there's a lot of just sort of back and forth there. There's a lot of churn in terms of how I decided to structure these things. And that was just very useful because Clojure makes it very easy for you to build these layers of abstraction and then sort of tear them away and then try to unify them. And it's just, it's a very malleable kind of medium. And it helped me understand where are the essential complexities in systems development. And then you touched on a couple times Clojure being able to take advantage of all the Java libraries. Maybe this is part of your book as part of the elements of Clojure, but where does that fit in? Because I've just following from the outside of the Clojure community, there's been a couple swings of take everything that's Java and wrap it and put a Clojure interface around it versus no, just use the Java. And I've heard the pendulum swing back and forth a couple of times. Of like, when do you do this? When's Clojure? So it, if you've done this for a while, you started out just wrapping Netty and making it 100 lines of code, which that's still quite a bit of code for Clojure, but it's still not a lot overall. But mm-hmm. and you've worked on this and extended this four years. You've done this elsewhere. Where's that kind of fitting in? Maybe where is that closure sweet spot for when do you wrap something versus when do you just use something and when do you make it more closure-esque? So this is something that I talk about or have talked about a lot and, and tried to decide because I think that you're right. There was a period of time early on where people are just like the idea of camel case just felt gross somehow, right? If there weren't hyphens between everything, then you're doing it wrong. And so people would write these really trivial wrappers over an existing thing just to make sure that they didn't have to feel the Javaness of it. And I think that that's frankly pointless, not least because often people would just go and expose whatever subset of the API they thought was useful. And in general, if you can just like have a Java object, then you can do all the things with it. And if you can only access it via this existing API, then you can't. And so you're not providing much value other than this sort of weird aesthetic kind of elitism there. And so I don't think that there's a lot of value there. I do think that Clojure as a language for a full stack language makes less sense layered atop something like Java. Because I think Clojure, as I said, is a very malleable medium. And I think that there are parts of your code that you want to have that malleability, which are sort of the connective tissue between the different components. But there are also things which having that sort of level of malleableness, having that sort of plasticity doesn't help you. It just makes it harder for you to reason about what's going on. I think that, you know, at some point you're just like, this is a problem. It's very well understood. Here's a solution. It's also very well understood. And this component that I've built to solve this particular problem may at one point cease to be a problem that we care about, right? We might discard the code because the sort of the business or the larger problem space has moved on, but we're not going to go and try to tweak it, right? We're not going to go and reach in and try to like twist a bunch of knobs or anything like that. And so for that sort of thing, which in the book, I I sort of talk about the difference between an adaptable approach to solving problems and a principled approach. 
where adaptable code is sort of this graph-like structure of these sorts of very sparse relationships between these things. And it's very easy to go and tweak one part with having these sorts of ripple effects elsewhere in your code. Whereas a principled thing is very hierarchical. And the sort of the principles established at the root dictate how everything beneath it is structured and how the problem is solved. And so it's very predictable. If you know that this is generally how the thing is designed, it's very easy for you to reason about if this works this way, then this thing over here on the other side probably works this way. And that's very nice, but that also makes it sort of fragile because you can't go and start like tweaking little pieces of it without having that whole house of cards kind of topple down. And so I think that those are complementary approaches. And you want to have this sort of exploratory stuff coalesce into something more principled over time where possible. But you generally need to have a level of flexibility in your code where you still are figuring stuff out, right? At the frontiers of your problem solving, you do not want to go and try to create a completely rigid sort of calcified solution. And so to sort of circle back to your original question, I think that Java is pretty good at calcified solutions. I mean, it is. And I mean, you know, Java is not a well-loved language. And I think the kind of faint praise I've damned it with in the past is that it's a very good assembler for the JVM. You know, it's very predictable what it will go and compile down into. It doesn't provide too many abstractions that have sort of unpredictable performance characteristics or sort of memory characteristics or what have you. And its type system is there, right? It's not a good one. No one would claim that it is, but it's, you know, it's it's adequate. It goes and it saves you from making dumb mistakes, even if it doesn't necessarily allow you to represent complex invariants. And so it's good at making those sorts of principled things. Once you know how to solve a problem, it's sometimes better to just write it in Java than it is in Clojure because Java makes it clear exactly what it is that you're trying to do. It makes it clear exactly what can and cannot change about this. And so being able to take something which has sort of coalesced and become a little bit more well understood and being able to take the stuff that is Clojure, which is very flexible and turning into something more rigid has value. And so Clojure as the connective tissue between these stable Java components is, I think, its sweet spot. And so it's useful sometimes to abstract over that, right? Because maybe you want to go and pluck out one of those Java components and replace it with a different one. Or maybe you want to pluck it out and you realize that you didn't understand this as well as you thought it did and sort of fill it in with this sort of more malleable closure. And so having these layers of indirection between your closure and your Java can have value, but only in as much as you feel like the code is liable to change as opposed to, you know, Java's gross, don't make me like have to acknowledge that it's there. I think that was a answer to your original question of uh, a little bit indirectly. And I was wondering where that fit in the worldview today, because I see some of those conversations happening with F-sharp and C-sharp. Like, okay, we're going to now wrap everything. And some of that is, well, we want to get rid of nulls. So maybe in that case, when we're trying to model some of this stuff, it makes sense. Or some of these discriminated unions make a little bit more sense. But I also see that in the Erlang and Elixir communities where Certain people will just wrap anything just because they don't want to deal with the other language that is another language. Like, I just only want to think in my language. And so I wrap it. So I didn't know where that was falling with closure, looking at another community who's kind of been through those many skirmishes within the community to say, do we have any good recommendations on when you kind of wrap this or when you do it? It's probably the same thing as C and dropping down into assembly at some point of, sure, you can do it. At what point does it make sense to do it? And what point is Is it just like, let's just stay with this because it makes sense and we've got the power here. Right. And I think that 
Now, if we're comparing, say, F-sharp and C-sharp, like, you know, yes, the fact that F-sharp, frankly, works better when you don't have null, but it's there. And anytime that you want to go and build on top of the C-sharp ecosystem, which is basically why you have F-sharp and not OCaml, you have to kind of deal with that boundary between them. But I think that that's actually a fairly minor difference. There's a fairly minor impedance mismatch compared to Clojure and Java, where Clojure wants everything to be an immutable map, and Java wants everything to be an object. And those are extremely different worldviews. And so sometimes it does make sense to go and sort of lift that up and say, hey, we're going to go and turn this into this representation here, which Clojure is very able to work with. And then we're going to go and at the boundary sort of convert it from and to the thing that Java wants. And I think that that has a lot of value, but only where there's enough in between, right? Because, I mean, you can go and you can deal with objects. Purity is a important at the boundaries. It's not important in the middle, right? Like you don't need to make sure that everything within a particular sort of abstraction isn't going and mutating stuff. It's only important that that sort of mutation doesn't leak out, that you don't sort of lose that referential transparency. And I think that the community has gotten better at understanding where that does and doesn't matter. And I think that another nice thing is that there is a pretty strong undercurrent of pragmatism to the people who were originally attracted to the language. They wanted to use it because they liked Lisp, but also because they liked Java. And that Venn diagram isn't huge, which, you know, maybe accounts for why the language itself is not like taken on the sort of success that other popular dynamic languages have. But it does mean that, you know, a lot of people who are the Lisp purists, right, who want the console to be reified at the silicon level, they're kind of turned off by it. And I think that that's okay, right? They wouldn't have been very happy in the closure community anyways. And we're kind of talking about some of this stuff. That's how I described the book to you before we started recording, which was I've heard people refer to this as there's a lot of good stuff about how to get into closure and how to get started and figure some of the ideas out. You've got the Joy of Closure series, you've got Programming Closure, you've got Closure Programming, you've got a couple, all these others that are going out that are still introducing essentially the sales pitch for Closure. Then you've got, as you mentioned, Paul Graham, who said, here's why we have Lisp. Like, I bought into the Lisp in general, but to get it, take me from learning that to here's Lisp and I can do everything Paul Graham or Peter Siebel or all these other people who write about Lisp talk about exercising the power years has been described as here's the book that's that transition, that intermediate that says you understand the syntax, you know how to get stuff done. This is kind of helping you cross that chasm from being, I can use Clojure as a nice functional language that's powerful and a nice saw to, I can essentially now put on my wizard hat and it helps show some of those special incantations. So and I've read a little bit of the previews, but do you want to give a pitch for the book, maybe in your own words, of where you find it and what kind of topics it covers? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I should go and kind of contextualize this a little bit because I first said that there needed to be a good second book for closure back in 2012. And my pitch for that was I was actually at Strange Loop with a number of other closure people and we were talking and I said, there needs to be a Strunk and White for closure. Strunk and White's Elements of Style is this kind of book which is short and opinionated and wrong in some cases, right? It's very narrow and prescriptive, 
But that's okay, because it's just trying to go and give you this very narrow set of prescriptions to follow until you feel like you know better, right? Allows you to walk before you can actually run. And I saw with Clojure, in part because I think that the way that Rich Hickey sort of presents his own sort of design ethos lends itself to this idea of there is a right way to do things. There is a thoughtful way to do things. And I think a lot of people didn't want to write closure that wasn't properly thoughtful. And so I would see people getting very twisted up about like whether or not they're writing closure the right way. And this is especially bad because oftentimes where people were trying to have closure be adopted in their workplace, whoever was excited about closure would be the person who had to teach people how to use closure. And a lot of people who are in that position had this sort of imposter syndrome of like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, an expert in closure. I don't really know how to write closure well. But then everyone's kind of going to them and saying, like, is this right? You know, and so that was bad, right? And so not having something which was prescriptive and narrow and kind of captured these idioms and just said, do it this way until you think you know better seemed like it would be valuable for for the adoption for the sort of health of the community. And so that night in St. Louis. I raced a few other people to go and register elementsofclosure.com on my phone and I won. And so that was it. I was going to, I was going to write a book about closure and a number of years passed without me actually knowing what that book was supposed to be. Right. I, I kind of had a couple of false starts, but you know, what immediately occurred to me after this was, you know, Strunk and White is effectively a style guide, right? Strunk and White is trying to ask like, how do you write a good sentence? Right. And if you're trying to write an essay, if you're trying to write a novel, a novel is not just a collection of good sentences. Right. There is a set of relationships between those sentences, which matters more really in in terms of the overall quality of the work than the individual construction. And likewise, for programming, like, yeah, okay, let's let's agree that, you know, things are intended a certain way. Things are named a certain way. But like at the end of the day, what matters is like, what is the connective glue between all these different pieces? And so it wasn't just going to be a style guide, right? I realized pretty early on that it wasn't just Strunk and White, even though, it's, you know, the book is still called Elements of Closure, which leads to some people being like, are, are you sure you don't want to rename the book? Like, it seems like it's very, you know, and so I've excised any mention of Strunk and White from any of this, the descriptions of it, because I think it just at this point is more misleading than helpful. But once I started to kind of go and think about this, right? So the, the first topic I really tried to go deep on was names, because like you can go and you can say, okay. If the data represents this, then call it this, right? If it's just a map and it's a generic map, call it M. If it's a generic value that has no actual type, call it X. If it's a sequence of generic values, call it XS. Like, you know, these are standard idioms. Getting these right mean that people who have been writing closure for a while will understand implicitly what your code does. It's very helpful to have standards in that way. But there's a deeper set of questions, which is what makes a name good, right? And what makes name good is not just it follows the idioms that have been established, right? There is something a little bit deeper than just this is what we've sort of decided to do arbitrarily. And I wanted to kind of get at that. And, and this was in part because, you know, in this time from about 2012 onwards, I was starting to get into more senior roles. And so it was no longer just me writing code and making things work. It was actually trying to mentor people or to go and review the work that they had done. I was now in the job of saying, is your closure you know, good or whatever? And what I found was I had opinions. Like I certainly could look at something and say, I think that you should do this this other way, right? This is not the right way to do it. And that felt very clear to me. But then the next question that I would invariably be asked is, okay, cool, why, right? Why is your way better than mine? Like I'm willing to believe you, 
but you know it would be helpful for me to be able to to understand what your thought process is here and i would be stymied like i wouldn't have an answer for that right? i wouldn't be able to go and say oh this is exactly what my thought process was right it was an intuitive understanding not a a sort of completely realized understanding and that was very unsatisfying for me it felt like that didn't scale but also it felt very sort of argument by authority. And I saw this happening a lot in my workplaces where people would disagree on some part of a pull request or, you know, what have you. And it would be settled by like, well, I've been programming for 11 years and you've only been programming for 10 and a half. So like, you know, sit down and be quiet. I'm right. You know, maybe in six months, you'll understand where I'm coming from. And like, clearly that's not true, right? There's not some sort of single convergent path towards an understanding of software, right? There are many people who have many different sort of perspectives on this. And I wanted to create a vocabulary. I felt a lot of people were sort of talking past each other. And so, you know, over time, and as I started looking at this through the sort of the lens of naming, because I decided that my first chapter was going to be about names, I tried to kind of figure out like, what is at the essence of this? Like, what are the actual questions that we're asking when we're asking, is this a good name? When we go and try to compare two names, or when we try to say, you know, if this name is bad, what would make it better? What are we actually trying to get at there? And I had, during my sort of little walkabout in school, sort of pursued some philosophy, and, and some of the philosophy courses I took were in the analytic school, which is a group of philosophers, including Russell and Quine and Frege and a bunch of people who are sort of logicians and mathematicians, and they wanted to create a very formal understanding of knowledge. Like, what if we start from first principles, what can we get? This is the sort of line of reasoning that led to the Principia Mathematica and other things like that. And they talked a great deal about names. And I was kind of wondering, like, if I go and I read this and I go and sort of distill this, or at least take the pieces that are sort of relevant to the sorts of names we do in software, can I go and provide a framework, not a formula? There's not something that says, let's plug in this and we have a closed form thing that, you know, presto, out pops a name but at least provide some sort of framework where someone can go and combine their own domain-specific knowledge to be able to come up with a good name, but also be able to explain why the name is good. And so that was what I tried to do. And I, I tried to do this for names, and it, it seemed to work pretty well. The free chapter that's available for the book is the first chapter, which is about names. And I published that originally two years ago. And I published it two years ago just by itself because I wasn't really sure if this approach was going to work for anybody. And so I had spent a fair bit of time writing this and I had shared with a few friends, but I kind of, you know, was starting to really doubt whether or not this was something which was more than just kind of a weird little vanity project for myself. And so I wanted to just kind of get a broader perspective on it. And so I just threw it out there and, and saw what people thought. And, you know, by and large, the response was very positive, like unexpectedly so. And so I decided to try to push on and to try to continue in this vein, which was there are certain questions we're constantly asking about software, right? And we use these words, we talk about names, we talk about good names or bad names, we talk about good abstractions or bad abstractions, we talk about how do you build systems. And all of these terms are very foggy. It's very easy for people to talk about abstractions and be talking about two different entire things, right? And to talk past each other without even realizing it. And so I wanted to take these words and tried to distill a definition that seemed to sit at the core of how most people used it, but then also talk about, okay, so what are the concerns here? When we say something is a bad abstraction, what does that mean? When we say that something is composed well or allows for composition, what does that mean? And unfortunately, 
where philosophy kind of gave a very clear set of guidelines for naming, abstraction was much less well mapped out. The word is used everywhere indiscriminately, but not with any sort of way where it's really been formalized. In fact, you know, if you go and you search for like, what is the definition of abstraction? You'll find a bunch of things that like all seem to be kind of circling around the same idea, but are, if you go and take them at their word, lead to very different conclusions about what makes an abstraction good. And also, I think that you can see the same sort of drift in terms of when people in the Haskell community talk about abstractions versus people in the Ruby community talk about abstractions. These lend themselves to different sort of metrics that they're using, right? Unspoken metrics, sort of these self-selected communal metrics that are based more on the cultural values that are brought in than any sort of from first principles understanding of the term. And so I wanted to give something that was a little bit more grounded. And in the process, the book that I wrote certainly is about closure, but it's also about a lot more than closure about software in general, really closure being used as a lens to understand what are the sort of fundamental questions of software. And so I actually recently registered elementsofsoftware.com because at some point, maybe I'll try to go and write this book without the kind of the closure perspective, which I think necessarily makes it a little bit more niche than it otherwise has to be. But that's kind of what it turned into. And I, you know, as I said, the first chapter was published two years ago, and it took me two years to get to a complete first draft of the book. And the book is only 25,000 words. It's extremely short. And really what it was is just I was doing an enormous amount of reading. I actually quit my job to be able to sort of focus on this full time for a year because it was really getting under my skin. What is an abstraction? What is composition? What are these sorts of things? What are the conceptual frameworks we do here? And like, what do we mean when we say these things? So my hope is that people from a broad set of backgrounds and a broad range of communities will read this and find this useful, parentheses notwithstanding. But I also know that at this point, I don't have a deep enough understanding to be able to necessarily divorce this from closure. Closure is the medium that I've used to understand these problems. And so, you know, it is elements of closure still, not elements of software. That's a future project that I, I maybe it'll, that'll take another six years or something. But that's kind of at length what the, the book is about. And I was going to ask you that it almost sounds more like the philosophical framework, which is what you were describing with closure as the lens you're viewing it through. And that sounds like what you ended up saying towards the end with the elements of software and it is closure. But if someone coming from any other functional language, because I'm sure that would map pretty strongly there, maybe not as much with OO with some of these composition ideas, but still probably still applicable. But it sounds like some of this stuff is the stuff that is more of your philosophy minor creeping through of how do we think about this from a framework that my limited understanding of philosophy is you you had all these different schools, the Stoics, the rationalists, all these others that had their own things of how do I reason about what this means, the rhetorics and all that kind of stuff where everybody had their camp of we're trying to figure out what that framework of thinking about thinking is. And this is kind of that, this is the framework of thinking about what it means to think about software almost at a meta level. Then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I mean, you know, again, I think that it's it's hard for me, like I have a decade's worth of perspective on software and the vast majority of that is is through my use of closure. And so I think that some of the ways I talk about this is some of the ways I talk about, say, abstraction. Like I think that for people from the category theoretic background, that has a very particular meaning, which implies the use of certain kinds of uh, formalisms and everything like that. 
And I try to go and I try to allude to this because I think it's important, but I think that one of the major sort of divisions in terms of how people use abstraction is I talk about abstraction as something which is has a proof wrapped around it, is sort of this entirely self-consistent thing. And that, in fact, the original definition of abstraction, which has been used throughout the literature, comes from a 1972 paper by Tony Hoare called Proof of Correctness of Data Representations. And he says an abstraction is the relationship between an interface, which exposes sort of externally visible semantics, and a model, which is the implementation that underlies the interface. And his point is that many models can expose the same semantics via that interface. If you have a set, it can be a hash set, it can be a tree set, it can be a sorted set, it can be, you know, any, any sorts of sets you can imagine. These are all just sets, right? You can use them sort of interchangeably. And so when people talk about abstractions, they often talk about, okay, well, this thing it has these provable sort of concepts, this relationship between this sort of internality and this externality. But what it doesn't talk about is, is this a useful abstraction? Does this sit within this broader context where the set is even a valuable thing to have? And the perspective that I bring to this, which is I've certainly played around with quote unquote more advanced type systems, but I'm by no means an expert, is that I think that those have value, but I don't think that they are a solution to the fundamental question of software, which is, have we created a representation of the problem which is valuable given what we're trying to do, right? What these type systems give us is the ability to say, this is a self-consistent representation, right? There are certain invariants. We've proved that these invariants hold. There are certain relationships between the model and the externally visible semantics. We've proved that those hold. But once you place this in the real world, right, in a larger software system, or you connect it to actual end users or to the world as a whole, those invariants no longer hold. The software cannot force the world to tell it when things in the world change, right? You know, if someone loses their email password, the database will not suddenly, you know, erase that email from their user records. There's drift and there's is inescapably drift. And I think that we're bad at writing software, which is self-consistent. And so to write tools, to have these tools and these mechanisms that give us that ability, this is nothing to sniff at. But I just actually, my personal view is that this is not actually the hardest problem in software. The hardest problem in software is to create software which is useful and which remains useful and allows for it to be to adapt to changing circumstances such that as the world changes and as our needs change, it too changes in sort of a reflection of that. And so that's what I focus on. And I think that there are almost certainly, if someone from the Haskell or, you know, further off in these sort of Idris wings of programming language sort of theory read this, that may not reflect what they think is sort of the hardest problem, right? And I don't claim to have some sort of ultimate perspective on this, but I do think that what Clojure is good at is this kind of call and response, this constant observation and adaptation to our changing understanding of the problem that we're trying to solve. And so I think that the perspective that I bring to this and the sort of definitions that I ascribe to this reflect the core of the problem as is understood by, you know, closure of the language, which, you know, in part is a reflection of Rich Hickey's sort of perspective on this, but also as a reflection of how the community understands that and is just like the tool itself and the capabilities that it extends. And so that's at a very high level what I think that this is trying to do. But like, again, the reason I'm excited to be on this podcast and to talk to uh, sort of honest people that come from a broader set of backgrounds is that I would hope that it would, what I talk about here has value, has resonance for people from a variety of backgrounds. And I'm also curious to hear from people who disagree, who think that I am ignoring sort of central aspects of these concepts, because again, I don't know enough yet to write elements of software. 
And I, I would love to hear from people who have different or broader perspectives than I do. So it sounds like the quote that I've heard, and I have no idea who said it, was all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And it's that the argument along the agile groups of the early XPers, it sounds like, with the TDD helps you make sure you're building it right, but it doesn't make sure you're building the right thing. And it sounds like some of these abstractions that you're talking about from some of the Haskell or Idris as is the it helps make sure that you're right as far as you're consistent with what you think you're building, but it may not make sense that the model is a useful one. You're you're building a model which may be not quite useful. Right. It may be perfect. And I think that this is a problem with using the term correctness, because correctness seems to imply some sort of universality that it sort of, you know, is timeless. And, you know, yes, there is a timeless set of interrelationships between your software with your software. But there are certainly not timeless relationships between your software and the world in which it exists, right? So like one of the examples I talk about is like, you know, church numerals are a perfectly useful way, timelessly useful, probably to go and construct proofs around arithmetic. It's a hopelessly useless way to represent numbers in any sort of physical way. Whereas concells, which are another sort of part of the Lisp lineage, were a very useful way to represent data until memory latency started to kind of blow up. And following each of those little pointers actually ended up being a, a meaningful amount of overhead, which is why Clojure uses chunked memory that sort of points to each other, right? Because that amortizes the cost of those sorts of things. And so we can go and we can look at the console and say it's very elegant, right? And it is. And we can say that it allows us to construct things which work, and they do. But that doesn't mean that it has some sort of timeless utility in the context of making software, at least, right? Whereas the church numeral has timeless utility in the context of constructing proofs and timelessly is horrifically inefficient in the way of actually physically representing numbers. And so I think that that's one of the distinctions I try to talk about, which is, you know, we cannot think about our software in terms of itself. We have to turn our eyes outwards, right? We have to take this sort of broader perspective. And I try to pull in a lot of different metaphors from city planning, from biology, from other sorts of things, because that is part of how I've approached this. And I think that we're in a very early time now with software where learning about software is just like learning algorithms and data structures. And I think that there is a broader perspective and a broader understanding of the world which is required to write useful software. And having that be something which is just kind of learned incidentally, right, it, which is an exercise left to the reader is probably not ideal. And I would love to have more people talk about how software embeds within their particular sort of domain of expertise, right? What are the things that, so that software does well here? What are the things that you wouldn't expect cause sorts of problems with these certain sorts of things? Because so often we talk about software in terms of itself, right? We sort of circumscribe this bubble and say, yes, there's a world, but no, it's not relevant to this discussion. And like, of course it is, right? Of course, that's something that you have to add before you can go and start making any sort of value judgment of a thing. And I would like to see more of that. Well, we're pushing our time a bit, but would still love to know if there's anything that we haven't covered that you think is worth mentioning, at least at a high level, and putting on people's radars of things related to the stuff we've talked about or anything else that you think at least needs a mention before we start to move on and wrap up the episode. No, I think that we've covered most of it. Again, do encourage people. The first chapter on names is free. Please go ahead and go to elementsofclosure.com, one word. And there will be links to a free sample and some other sorts of stuff there. And 
this is still an ongoing project. I finished the first draft. I'm taking a little bit of a, a step back just so I can go and kind of gain some perspective. But I still very much enjoy hearing from people who think that it is good or it's terrible or who feel like I've been unclear in some sort of point that I was trying to make. And so please do take a look. And if the, the first chapter resonates for you, I recommend reading the rest. So, yeah. And I believe you've given some presentations and talks at Strange Loop or some of the other closure conges. Is there any presentations you have upcoming on your radar? Are there any other projects that you're involved with that you want to let people know? Where can people, what are things you want to let people know about besides the book? I have not been working on any talks. Talks are an enormously time consuming thing that I've been trying to do less of. But I have been working on a sort of developer tools I mentioned earlier in this and it's still very early days and I don't really have anything concrete to show, but I have what I think is some interesting thoughts on how to sort of do more exploratory programming. And I guess if anyone is super interested in that, follow me on Twitter or go ahead and just check in on my personal site that's that's linked to from the book site. And I will have more to say about that probably within the next uh, six months. Okay. And I know some people, when they write a book, they go off and they don't do any talks. And then there's another subset of the population that says, for me to write the book, I have to talk it out. And talks are the way of me gathering my ideas going to these conferences. So I wasn't sure where you were falling on that one, if you had any. Oh, certainly I have given talks that overlap with the material in the book. Those are all linked to on my personal page. But, you know, the most recent one that I think has been released is called uh, On Abstraction. It covers some of the ideas we talked about here. Those ideas have, I think, been far better rendered in the book than in the talk. This is kind of how that plays out. So, I mean, talk is free. Please feel free to look at it. But I I do think that I still have people who will go and email me saying, you know, I, I disagree with this point in the talk. I'm like, yeah, me too. I think I could have said that a little bit more clearly. But it's always a little bit of a a jerk move to say, you know, please go buy my book so you can get the better thing. So I don't want to say that that's sort of a necessity. But, you know, certainly I think that if the talk resonates at all or even seems interestingly wrong to you, I think that they're done a much better service in, in the book itself. And then you mentioned your Twitter feed and your personal site, which is linked to off the book site. And I'll get those included in the show notes. Are there any other places for people to track you down, follow along, keep up to date with what you got going on? No, that's it. Okay. So I'll make sure to get all those links and everything else we talked about in the show notes so people can come back and find you and find the book and find out more of what's going on in your world. Thank you. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Zach, for taking your time to join me today. As I said, I've seen your name floating around in the Clojure community because from an outsider who's played with Clojure and has liked the ideas, it's always interesting to see what Clojure puts forward. And then seeing some of this stuff and seeing the book and talking with you now makes me excited to read it since it sounds like it's general ideas about some of this stuff, at least the beginning of that idea and would definitely be looking forward to a elements of software if that comes in the future. But in the meantime, definitely more interest in the book and seeing how it can apply. One of the things I mentioned I like about this podcast is it helps me see those commonalities across a bunch of different languages. And I think that's one of the things that appeals about Clojure is Clojure is also not afraid to steal ideas from other places and tweak them and integrate them where they make sense. So looking forward to that about the book. So it was a pleasure talking with you. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. 
Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts on the book. Till next time, this has been Functional Geekery.